Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. Hear God's word. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The words of Christ before us this morning are no small rebuke. The Pharisees have just questioned the practice of his disciples and their lack of hand washing. And Jesus turns it around on them by asking why they break the commandments of God for the sake of their traditions. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 13. And then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me. And and the fear of me is in the command of men learned by rote. The people had grown apathetic to the commands of God. Even in Isaiah's day, they worshiped with their mouths. They followed the outward traditions and practices of the elders, but they did not worship with their hearts. The rebuke from Jesus is twofold. They draw near with their lips, and they are actively pulling away with their hearts. Their hearts are not just far away, but they work to separate themselves from God. The development of traditions had actively separated the people from God. The commandments of men had superseded the law of God. Later in Isaiah 29, it says, You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? that what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Our call this morning is to examine where our hearts are leading us. Do we actively seek to draw near to God? Not just in word, but with our hearts and our souls. Think about the last few weeks if we worked our way through the Ten Commandments. Are we growing in love for those commandments, those words given to Moses, for the instructions of the Israelites and us? Are we actively seeking the whole counsel of God, doing what he has commanded us, building on the rock of his revelation to us, not just hearing his word, but living it out, having our hearts transformed by his spirit? Let us confess now that we have worshiped in word only, calling on God to forgive us and change our hearts to love and serve him faithfully. chapter 21 that we're about to read in four different sections, we see something interesting happen in the life of the Apostle Paul. He gets a lot of advice. In fact, three different places, three different groups of people, he gets advice. And what I'd like to do is to look at each of those uh, those opportunities for him to receive that advice, what he said and did in response to that advice, and what happened as a result of that that exchange. Um, I find fascinating that his response is different each time. So let's look for that in the text. But before we open the text, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we continue with Paul on this third, his third missionary journey, bless us with tender hearts 
about what you have for us in this text. Teach us, mold us, shape us, correct us, so that our lives might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first portion of text I'd like to look through with you is is Acts 21, verses 1 through 6. Here's God's word. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and when he had parted from them and set sail, he came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we, Luke included here, went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for the ship There the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they, that is the disciples there at Tyre, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The advice. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And we went on board the ship and they returned home. So here what we see is a very interesting uh, interaction here. The Apostle Paul and Luke and others were encountering disciples there at Tyre. And, and Tyre, by the way, is modern Lebanon. So if you have a, a mental map of the Middle East and, and that area, the Mediterranean, you'll understand that this is Lebanon. And Paul was given this advice. You will be in danger in Jerusalem. But here, Paul knew what his mission was. Paul knew all along by direct revelation, we learned earlier in Acts, that he was to go to Jerusalem. This was no surprise to him. In fact, it may have been something of a comfort or a confirmation to him that, yes, indeed, I'm aware that I'm going to be in uh, danger when I go to Jerusalem. Their advice to him through the Spirit were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So how do I... Is this a contradiction? If he's been given advice through the Spirit to not go, and he's received direct revelation to go, is there a contradiction there? My answer to that question is simply no. The revelation, the realization that the disciples entire came to was that he'd be in danger. Their conclusion and advice took a wrong turn. They said, as a result, don't go. They have seen in the past that Paul has diverted the troop. He has gone a different way. He's left early. He stayed in hiding to avoid being in danger in the past. They may be extrapolating here, but Paul will have nothing of it. And what you don't see is you don't see any kind of conflict or dust up here. You see that they gave the advice, and then when he went on his way... Uh, It's very interesting to me that they had a very sweet farewell time together after just a week together. So this is the first piece of advice. Paul quietly declines and, and graciously goes on. 
Now verses 7 through 14. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who is one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Again, Luke includes himself. We urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, quote, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So I want to recount and provide you a little bit of context that Luke introduces us to Philip all the way back in Acts chapter 8. You might remember that the first eight chapters of Acts were, were all took place, those events all took place in the first three years after the ascension. So this was now 20 to 25 years ago we met Philip in Acts chapter 8. We're now seeing him reemerge and he has four daughters, four unmarried daughters, and, they're, and they prophesy. We don't know anything more about Philip and his four daughters other than what's written here. So anything else would be, uh, wouldn't be prudent. And then, as he's staying with Philip and Philip's family, there's a visitor to Philip's family, Agabus. And you might recall that we that we heard Agabus mentioned in our second scripture reading this morning. And it was Agabus who came for the express purpose of giving Paul advice. This is advice giving number two. And, and Agabus, apparently, in first century prophet mode, was he acted it out. Paul, let me take your belt for a minute. I'm going to bind my legs. I'm going to bind my arms. This is what's going to happen to you when you go, if you go, to Jerusalem. And that's, that is apparently the way prophets behaved in the first century, from what, we can, from what we can tell. And then in verse 13, we sort of, we see a bit of a parallel between Paul's response to Agabus, because Agabus came on strong, and he apparently had the backing of those who were traveling with Paul, and said, it almost reminded me of Jesus in his face-to-face -face encounter with Peter where, where Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You might remember that Peter didn't want Christ to be in danger. Don't go there, don't do that. And, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. This is something that I am going to do. This is something I need to do. This is something I'm called to do. This is something I will do. Paul almost had that same kind of obedient single-mindedness. I don't read here that Paul was being difficult or obstinate. Um, 
my first impression was that he was being a little cheeky, you know, a little sarcastic in his answer. But I think he responded with crystal clarity that he was called to do this very thing, and that's exactly what he would be doing from an obedience perspective. As I've alluded to a few times in the past few weeks, Paul received direct revelation from God, and that is not what we should expect today. Therefore, I submit to you that when we encounter a difference of opinion, as Paul did with Agabus and with the others who who were trying to do a group intervention for the Apostle Paul, when we encounter differences of opinion among the brethren, and, and by the way, we should expect that, we should approach those differences of opinion with two things. With humility, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I have something to learn, and understand that it's an opportunity for us to show love. Agape love is, is love in action. Sometimes that action is words. That we can love one another in the way in which we disagree with one another. And I want to leave you with that sort of takeaway from it doesn't have to be a quick confrontation, close the conversation, move on. It can be gracious, loving, and reflect humility as well. As we continue through the text, we move on to verses 15 through 26. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Now, finally, all the people who have been telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem, here he is in Jerusalem. And they were expected, and he was greeted. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. This is the church leadership of the church in Jerusalem 25 years post-ascension. They got together because Paul was there. After greeting them, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He's been ministering not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles, and he gave a report to the church leaders about what was going on. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you. Here's the bad news. You have a bad reputation, Paul. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So you teach the Jews who live among Gentiles, don't follow the law, the Mosaic law. So they immediately, after they say, this is great news, then they say, we have a problem to solve. We've heard you out, Paul. Now let's see if we can solve this problem together. In verse 22, the leadership had already put together their plan of attack, and they're they're laying this on Paul for the very first time. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come, that is, the Jews in Jerusalem. 
Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. These are the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They've taken the Nazarite vow, the one that we read about in Numbers chapter 6. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have said about you. That is this false accusation that you encourage Jews not to follow the Mosaic law. Here's the proof positive. You can do this by your actions. But that you, you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as far as, as, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So that's what the elders said to them. And again, reflecting back on the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15 that we read as our third scripture reading. Then Paul took the men took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with the men and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So what did Paul do? He listened to their advice and the very next day he took those four men and got into the, to the schedule. Here's when the, the uh, purification will take place. I do have a tremendous amount of sympathy for what the elders in Jerusalem did in this case. Up to this point, the elders in Jerusalem of the Church of Jesus Christ had found a way to get along with the Jews who were living in Jerusalem. They had done that in part because they continued to fulfill and to honor the Mosaic Law. They were Jews, they were living in Jerusalem, they were doing the law, they hadn't ceased to do the law. In addition, the elders understood that Paul was being falsely accused. This is a false narrative. He's being falsely accused. And taking that accusation at face value, if they thought that the Jews in Jerusalem were honorable, they just need to see the truth. They, they need to see that what they've been saying about you is demonstrated demonstrably wrong and false. So Paul, you can demonstrate to these Jewish leaders and prove them wrong in a very public action. You don't have to even say a word. You can just do these things and they'll believe you. And the court of public opinion will turn on a dime and all will be well. These are the peacemaking hearts of the elders in the church of Jerusalem. And you'll also recall from Numbers chapter 6 that the resolution, the end of a Nazarite vow was a, vow was a really big deal. You had a burnt offering and a sin offering and a peace offering and a grain offering and a drink offering involving the sacrifice of two lambs, a ram, a basket of unleavened bread and more. This isn't a meal for a family of four. This is more like the scale of a fellowship meal. There's a lot going on here. And they suggested, Paul, you pay for that. You pay for that. Here are these four men. You pay, you accompany, you support. You can't be more all in if you do this. However, I do think that the elders in this case were naive. 
they misunderstood or, mis or underestimated the situation in which they found themselves. They treated the Jews in Jerusalem as reasonable people who would be persuaded by a logical argument, a public demonstration of Paul's commitment to the Mosaic law. However, in retrospect, I think we see that Paul in his teaching was an existential threat to their belief system, to the way they did things, and that because Paul had been targeted up until that point, this did not change the minds of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem at all. Well, now we get the rest of the story in verses 27 through the end of the chapter, verse 40. Luke 21, 27 to 40. When the seven days, that's the seven days of purification prior to the, the ending of the Nazarite vow, were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and, they, and when they saw that the tribune they went, and excuse me, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The police were on them. The authorities were on them. All of a sudden, their lawless, riotous behavior stopped. Oh, we're not doing anything. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound in two chains. Okay, let's bring about peace. What's going on here? And he inquired who he was and what he had done. He wanted to get, un, get behind what was going on here. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! So the barracks here are at the base of a large tower on this side of Jerusalem. This is almost 100 feet tall, where the tribune, that's a kind of like a colonel in our military lingo, the, the boss of 100, 200 people, hundreds of people. He was the big boss. He was the guy who said, we need to bring Paul back to the barracks, to the jail, so that we can protect him. And just as Paul just as they take hold of Paul and move him back to the barracks, the crowd is still wild. They, they still want to say away with him. That is, kill him. Don't not send him away. Kill him. What does Paul do? So Paul has been in Jerusalem for a week. He's taking steps to resolve this bad reputation. 
He's been beaten by a crowd, a loud crowd that was barely quelled by the authorities there. He's now in their custody. He's in chains. What does Paul do in this kind of crazy moment in, in his life? We learn for the, in the rest of the chapter what happened next. Paul was about to be brought into the barracks and he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? Here he is, Paul is cool and calm and collected. He said, and, and he said, do you know Greek? The tribune, the colonel, didn't know that Paul knew Greek. He thought he was this Egyptian guy. He mistook him for someone else. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Case of mistaken identity. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. In other words, I'm a Roman citizen, and this is a big city. I beg you, again, deferring, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had been given, and when he had given him permission, that is the tribune, gave Paul permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. Quiet down, I'm going to say something, says Paul. I wasn't talking to you, I was being Paul for a moment there. You can keep talking, especially if you're one of the short people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed the crowd in the Hebrew language, saying. So let's pause here for a minute. Something I found interesting is that although it is an, it is an absolutely accurate rendering that, the, that Paul did start to speak in the, quote, Hebrew language, that's what it says in Greek, what it actually means is that he was speaking in the street tongue of Jerusalem, that is Aramaic. So one of like four or five good translations out there actually does the, the extra work for us and says he was speaking in Aramaic. The rest of them rely on commentaries to let us know that he was not speaking Hebrew, what, what the priests and, and Levites would be doing in the back office in the, in the synagogue, but rather he was speaking in Aramaic. So Paul here was faced with these accusations, these two false accusations, and was, and was just about to address them to the crowd. Let's talk about these two accusations. So the, the first was that Paul did not teach the same thing to men everywhere. He didn't. He taught one thing to Jews and he taught another thing to Greeks. That is crystal clear from his behavior and from his teaching from the Council of Jerusalem, of which he was a part, and the, the whole reputation. So they glossed over and misstated what was going on here. The second accusation, which was even more salacious, even more outrageous, is that he brought Gentiles into the temple area and defiled the temple area by bringing Gentiles there. These are both manufactured charges. They include a few facts like the presence of Trophimus, of Ephesus in Jerusalem, it did sort of confuse people a bit about who brought whom into the temple, but Paul had nothing to do with that. 
Their sole purpose in bringing false charges against Paul was to neutralize the threat with this false accusation, knowing that if justice ever came, their mission would be accomplished first. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of repeat of this strategy happening in our day and time today. False narratives being spread across the the airwaves, across social media, and then action is taken as a result of the false narrative, even though the false narrative is then eventually proved wrong. You know, I think each of us could come up with a few examples of that in our day and time, and it was happening right here. What was very striking about it is that this is a direct violation of the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness. And yet the Jews, who were schooled in all the Mosaic law, the the Ten Commandments being the centerpiece of all of them, fully knowing that, said, we're going to neutralize this threat to our way of life and our way of thinking by bearing false witness against this man. Wow. It's just absolutely stunning. So then a riot happens. And members of the, of the crowd even started to beat Paul. And the Roman guard had to save him. And then they took him into custody. This last conversation, I think, is wonderful because it shows that Paul, despite having been in the middle of a crowd, the target of, of all of this kind of problem, still had a fair amount of composure, enough composure to ask permission to speak to the crowd, enough composure to speak to the, to, the, to the guards properly and to speak to the crowd. I'd like to move into two points of reflection, of application with this story, because next week we're going to hear what Paul actually said. And I'm so thankful that Luke was there to record it effectively, and we'll get to see what his message is. But for the moment, we're going to press pause. We're going to put a pin in Acts, leave it there. But I'd like to give you two closing thoughts that I had. One, I would submit to you that Paul is the personification in this chapter, the the very embodiment of Heidelberg One. Heidelberg One. Some of you may in your youth have memorized Heidelberg 1. If you haven't, I would commend it to you. It's, it's gold. It's a diamond. But let me share it with you now. And think for a moment about what Paul has just been through. His determination to be obedient, knowing that, that those in Jerusalem would be after him, possibly even to death. And yet he continues on, despite being encouraged. He, he was given a free pass and didn't take it. What is Heidelberg 1? Question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. 
Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What an amazing capsule of the Christian life. What an amazing capsule of the, of the driving force and the ethos for Paul as he marched to Jerusalem knowing that his, his very life and well-being would be in danger. I'd love to see the look on Paul's face when he reads Heidelberg 1 in glory, when he learns of it. Hey, 1,500 years later, that's me. That was, that was what he lived out. The second thing I'd like to leave, you with, leave with you today is that is in the answer to the question, what is it that prepares Paul for this kind of a trial in his life? I would, I would say that this is a trial. I've never been the object of violent hatred and mob riots. But what prepares Paul for this trial? And I would say that exactly the same thing that prepares Paul for this trial is what prepares us for the trials of our lives. That is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life, including all the means of grace, that is daily Bible reading, study, service to others, prayer, worship, fellowship with the brethren, all serve to prepare us for moments like the one we just read about for the Apostle Paul. A time of great challenge may have already happened in your life. We don't know when it's going to happen. Maybe it's still future in your life. You've, blessed, you've been blessed with a, relatively, uh, a, a life of relative ease, not including those trials. But with the Apostle Paul, we would do well to take steps each day to prepare for trials that are going to come. For any one of you, will it be a legal issue, a family issue, a health issue, a work issue, a neighbor issue, a false witness leading to the riot in the streets? What that trial will be, I can't tell you. But what I do know is that God has provided us with everything that we need to grow in faith and knowledge of him and will prepare us for the inevitable trials that we will see. So keep on keeping on in the Christian life. Do what you're doing. Come to, to worship. Come fellowship with God's people. Spend time in prayer and in study. Serve him with your lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, bless us with the kind of faith in action that Paul demonstrated in Acts 21 the kind described in Heidelberg 1. Bless us that we would give wise and helpful advice to each other. And when we receive advice, bless us that we would be thankful for it and yet wise as to whether to take it or not. And bless each of us as we continue our normal worship, study, prayer, fellowship, and service for you as we wait for your gracious hand in our lives.
want to continue where I left off a couple of weeks ago with Paul's letter to the Galatians. Here in chapter 6, we're instructed to be generous and do good. Let me read it. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, this first verse in, in 6 there says, Share all good things with the one who teaches. I want to set that verse aside right now as I thought about it this week. That's a great topic uh, for the men's forum coming up soon, especially in, in light of us seeking a teaching elder so, uh, and doing a budget review. So I think that's a good topic for the men's forum. But beyond being generous with our teacher, Paul explains that at our present time is seed time or planting time. And if you're a young parent with little children, you know, you know that uh, what you reap now in those little minds, what you sow, I'm sorry, in those little minds with the big ears, you'll reap later. Paul tells the Galatians that there are two sorts of sowing, one to the flesh and the other to the spirit. So will be the re- reckoning or the reaping later. Those who live a carnal life shouldn't expect any good fruit of such a course other than misery and ruin. Verse 7 says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will also reap. God knows our hearts as well as our actions. We heard that in our call to confession this morning. He cannot be deceived, neither will he be mocked in our actions. But the good news is, those who are under the guidance and influence of the Holy Spirit live a life of faith in Christ, and grace abounds, and we shall reap everlasting life. Verse 9 says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. We are all very apt to grow tired in service, particularly in doing good, in serving and caring and loving the body of Christ. Raising a family is hard. Then add to it serving and caring and loving the body of Christ in addition. It's uh, easy for someone my age to uh, think, well, it's time for somebody else to carry the load. I've been serving in the local church for 50 years. You know, it's time for somebody else to carry the load. We've got to guard ourselves against that and watch that we don't fall into that trap. For Paul says, those who persevere, run the race well, are promised the reward. This is why we come to the table to commune with each member of the body of Christ. As verse 10 says, so then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This united body of Christ assembled here this morning. So at Christ Church of Livingston County, we warmly invite to the Lord's Supper all those that are baptized disciples of Jesus Christ. Under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, by eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you acknowledge that you're a sinner. Without hope, except for the sovereignty and mercy of God, and that you are entrusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You also acknowledge to the elders of this congregation that you are in a covenant with God 
being active in a congregation which is covenantly bound to the triune God through word and sacrament. We believe that the Lord's Supper is an integral part of confession, repentance, renewal, and abiding in Christ. Moreover, it's our conviction that, that the bread and the wine should be received by all baptized covenant members who are able to physically eat and drink the elements, including our very young children being raised in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. If you have any doubt about your participation, please talk to Tim or I after the service. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.